D&D was born of a lot of conflicting influences, and the cleric is a great example of this melting pot of pop culture. It was originally introduced in the game as a class specifically about hunting the undead, but then picked up some limitations based on assumptions from characters like Archbishop Turpin or Udu of Bayou, using clubs or maces in their depictions. Have fun staking a vampire with a blunt stake! That doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, that's the point. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is our sanctuary, so you're only going to hurt us with an area attack. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew. I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, for some reason, they made me head Gnome. And I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, we'll be jumping into the Dungeon Master's Workshop, where we're going to look at the latest 1D&D playtest document, covering clerics and species. Then we're going to have some recommendations for D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. I realized during my most recent session uh, that it was going to be our last game for the year. Uh, with the way the holidays are falling, we won't be able to play on Saturdays until after the new year. So expect my campaign journal for the next episode to be a little late. Yeah, it's that time of year. Thankfully, we're actually, you know, we've communicated and we've played because there was one year where I blew up at my players because everyone said they would be available the Saturday before Christmas. And then at the last minute, oh, I'm not available. Oh, we've got something else going on. And I just kind of <laughs> exploded at them. As another note, I had told the group that I was planning on putting the game on hiatus after the first of the year so I could take a break from GMing. I've never been a forever GM, and I always start to feel a bit of burnout right around this time in a campaign. Oddly, though, I'm still going strong with this one and comfortable with it. Um, considering where we're at in the game, I let them know I'll keep going for a while longer into the new year, but that Tristan should still keep prepping for running City of the Cowls again, because I definitely want to get back to playing Dove at some point in the near future. <laughs> We started off right where we left the group last time, breathing a sigh of relief after beating the fungus creatures in the mushroom mines. Uh, it would have made sense to wrap this up at the end of last session, but the fight finished so late, it was better to pause and push that off until the beginning of this session. The group started off helping the trap miners and escorting them out. There was a bit of cleanup with some myconoid stragglers, but we kept that to the narrative rather than having actual combat. They discussed with the Stonefist brothers on whether or not to collapse the mine. In the end, they left it up to the brothers, with Cargill offering some advice on the best places to put charges. Um, and then they spent the night there with the miners in kind of the protected courtyard of the mine. Before they left, they ended up talking with the miners about the surrounding area to get a feel for which direction to head in. The miners let them know that they hadn't really gone east too far, but they knew there were some ruins in that direction. The north had some areas that might be good land for farmers, but they, again, hadn't gone too far north. And then finally, they told them not to go west because they knew of some people who had gone missing having headed in that direction. This is me planting seeds for when they go west, because there are things there that I want them to find. <laughs> to be honest, this session went a little quicker and smoother than I had expected. I had everything planned out, but for some reason, it felt surprising that they reached the next major encounter in that session and dealt with most of it. <laughs> They headed north, and they had some fumbles with traveling, a missed survival roll on the, the guide's part, uh, and then uh, a couple of the characters failed their traveler's curse save, ending up having to deal with our modified exhaustion rules, 
which adds a negative one to your roll for each level of exhaustion you have. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't monitor the two players to make sure they were always adding the minus one to their rolls. <laughs> we do know that Shard, the VTT we use, has made some changes, so we should be able to put in a mechanical condition that automatically adds it to the roll yeah. in the future. But I was like, I'm not going to be too much of a hard ass about this. I'll let them remember or not remember to add it in as they, they will. When they got further north, they found a beautiful valley that looked like it would be good farmland, but they also happened to notice a group of turtles in the distance heading away from the swamp that was at the far end of the valley. They quickly put together that the group was mostly old and young, and they were carrying a lot of their worldly possessions, making them most likely refugees of some kind. Half of the PCs approached carefully, but due to the players and not-so-great roles, it was kind of hilariously awkward. The other half of the group stayed kind of up on a rise, watching from afar and debated what was actually being said. In the end, it wasn't too bad because the turtles weren't inclined to be hostile or anything like that. <laughs> they learned that they had been driven out of their village by waves of undead that were attacking more and more frequently from the swamp around them. I was quite delighted when my players immediately offered to go help. <laughs> I have a problem when players fight against the plot. You know, like, I don't want to railroad or anything, but I mm -hmm. do get irritated if they push back against the plot hooks and don't yeah. want to engage in what I've put out there for them. So I love it when they're heroic and they're like, yeah, let's go do the thing. <laughs> this is a mission. We will go and do this mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I realized one of my players in my other group, he tends to go contrary because it's fun for him. And as a result, that stresses me out as a GM. Mm -hmm. I love him dearly, but he's high maintenance for me as a player. <laughs> Players headed towards the village, uh, and they met with the village elder and some warriors, and immediately, because of course it did, a wave of zombies attacked. Mm -hmm. This was a fun fight, because it was based on another map by Zipu, uh that has a bunch, it's basically called Bullywug Village or something like that, but it's basically a bunch of wooden walkways in a swamp with little huts here and there. It's, it's very cool. Sounds neat. That made the players have to navigate kind of a different landscape without going into the water, which would probably been a little more dangerous because they didn't know what was in the water <laughs> or, you know, how many more zombies might be walking on the body, whatever. But it made them stretch themselves a little with how they dealt with it. It was an easy encounter. You know, it was, it was pretty cool how they handled the space. When the fight was over, they talked with the village elder and they learned that there was an abandoned and ruined cloister nearby that was a source of some new evil that was making these undead rise up. The elder let them know that one of the villagers' revered warriors was buried there, and one of the few witnesses that survived checking the area had witnessed that revered warrior risen up as a giant undead turtle. Well, not giant, in medium, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there was a brief discussion about a possible farming community settling in the fields away from the swamp, but the village elder quite rightly told them that they wouldn't be able to discuss anything until the undead menace had been dealt with. <laughs> PCs, of course, were like, yes, we'll of course go deal with this, but we wanted to let you know why we're here. When they arrived at the ruined cloister, it was cloaked in ominous fog and radiating an uneasy feeling. And so this was a big fight built around the idea that an evil had been awakened there that was causing the drowned dead to rise up and congregate at the church and then go forth to attack the surrounding area. The toughest monster there was a drowned master, but I kind of slapped that template onto a turtle. So we that was our 
undead turtle who was the biggest mm-hmm. bad there. There was also a couple of zombie ogres and more of the regular zombies. Although by regular zombies, I mean husk zombies, because I'll get to this in a moment. My players are really good and I need to challenge them somehow. Mm-hmm. They're very tactically smart and they're always good about how they use their abilities. In the end, the undead portal only got one opportunity to attack. Admittedly, that attack proved that the players were right to keep him at bay and keep hitting him with range stuff before he could engage anybody in melee. But still, it makes it a little tough to give them a challenging encounter. We ended up with them having taken out all of the undead, but uncertain how to defuse the evil that infused the area. In fact, Manic even failed a saving throw when he attempted to interact with it, and immediately he, he failed and immediately was like, I'm going to go just drown myself in the swamp. I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> at which point they were all like, no, 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 come back here, yeah. come back here. <laughs> we ended with them taking the undead turtle's body back to the village to let the the village decide how to deal with his remains and also ask the village elder if he had any thoughts on how to defuse an evil that was causing the drowned undead in the swamps to rise up. (laughs) We will get to play again on January 7th, so we'll see where they go from there. I know it would have probably been rough for the level of characters you had, but describing that, I immediately started thinking of a turtle death knight. (laughs) (laughs) I have to start looking at like not just following the encounter builder guidelines Mm -hmm. and giving them slightly tougher things to deal with because I'll give them a a deadly encounter and they usually handle it just fine. Mm -hmm. They they still regard it as challenging, but you know, these guys are good. I am a little looser with the the Midgard game and just kind of letting that evolve versus, (laughs) you know, like when I do the playtest where I'm a lot more, you know, I because it's a playtest, I want to do it this way because that's what the rules say it should be. So yeah. Speaking of our Midgard game, we got to play this last time. (laughs) I'm excited. Um, So we left on a cliffhanger with the players trying to free all the kidnapped clerics from the magical locks that had them chained up. The locks all had symbols from the deck of many things on them, and there was a dial that would allow you to rotate the dial to another symbol from one of the other arcana of the cards. Because this could be potentially deadly for the clerics, this created a lot of stress for the players. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) Um, And not just the player characters, the players themselves. And I didn't really want them to get too stressed out. I tried to stress that the puzzle was about what the cards literally did and not any kind of overly tricksy symbolic logic. In reality, I just kind of had a loose idea of what the opposites were. And if somebody made a good argument that a symbol was the opposite of the symbol that was being displayed, I was going to let them run with that. I mean, this this is one of those things I've kind of tried to do every once in a while where I want the puzzle to feel like the player, the player characters figured out the puzzle, not so much that the players had to pick my brain apart to figure out <laughs> how I would have set up a puzzle. I think it was mostly stressful because it was the lives of those NPCs were mm-hmm. on the line for it. And it was like, uh. <laughs> like yeah, once, this- we, once we figured it out, it was still like the first couple were easy because it was like night versus day or that mm-hmm. type of thing. But then the rest were like. I don't know what the opposite of this is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was hard because like one of them was the cleric of the God of the Forge and the key in the deck of many things gives you an item. So it creates an item. So I was hoping that that, you know, OK, that's what the opposite of what they have on them is. But we worked it out. Like I said, it wasn't really meant to be a gotcha puzzle. It was really just meant for you to kind of generally figure out the logic and then BS your way into role playing a solution. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, I mean, I don't think I fully pulled it off. Um, I wanted the puzzle to, you know, feel like a real puzzle without the actual rigor of going through the the actual true, um, you know, solution for it. But I'm hoping that everybody had fun and that felt like like they actually engaged with this this dangerous puzzle to save all these people's lives. At the end of the previous session, I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I hate puzzles. <laughs> this is awful. But at the beginning of this session, once we got past and realized it was like, okay, the symbol is kind of the opposite of what the cleric's domain is so okay so the dial turned dial okay <laughs> and then it was it was very much asking the npcs for consent to attempt the thing yes that was that was i like that <laughs> this could blow you up are you okay with this <laughs> are you okay with me attempting this <laughs> it actually reminded me of that uh thing in hancock <laughs> do i have permission to touch your body <laughs> Okay, but um, so Andrew's rogue um, tossed all of the cabins that were on the ship. So they got a, a few pieces of evidence that kind of showed what the humble knights of sacred ashes were supposed to be doing and what they were really up to. And then when they got up to the um, the deck, they found out that there was a whole bunch of people there waiting to take them into custody. And this was because one of the kobolds managed to escape when they first assaulted the ship. And that kobold ran to the Knights of Sacred Ashes, who then ran to the uh, leaders in the city. Now, currently, they work directly for the dragon that is in charge of this region, but she is away, speaking to the other dragons that are part of the council that rules the, uh, the dragon empire. So they're a little bit more vulnerable at this point in time. What I was really hoping was that they didn't just tear in and start, like, murdering all of these people, because on one hand, yes, I'm sure Yurazaza could have cleared them of any charges against them. On the other hand, I kind of didn't want them to be the type of people that would just uh, <laughs> say, oh, we need to arrest you to sort things out and then decide, no, I, I got to murder you for trying to arrest me. <laughs> so I'm really glad they kind of, yeah, they kind of picked up on that idea that it was like a Warforge that brought humans and Dragonborn with her. So it wasn't like it was just all people that were sympathetic to the uh, Knights of Sacred Ashes. I mean, it was close. Ivy was telling us she did have one more fireball she could cast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, if anybody was contemplating it, I would figure it would be Ivy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, at that point, um, they were taken into custody. And the other thing that I wanted to emphasize, because I often don't see this in games, and this has actually been true in a lot of things, is there is the apartment-type prison, you know, where they're important people. So they're not really thrown in a dungeon. They're thrown in these apartments where they have servants. They just don't want them to leave this place. Like, just stay here. And if you're in trouble, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and we'll give you nice food. And <laughs> If you read up on actual historical royalty and all of that, when they got arrested and put in prison, they had nice apartments in the Tower of London. Yeah. You know, it wasn't all dungeons and torture chambers. I mean, it's, it's a little later period, but I just listened to a podcast about like Napoleon III and when he broke out of jail, which was literally he walked out because they didn't yeah. expect him to walk out and he just had like apartments and everything there. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> it's just decided one day I'm just going to walk out. So that was the type of prison that they went to. That doesn't mean that the stakes weren't a little bit higher, but they kind of figured that they're high profile enough now that you're just going to stay here until we have the trial. It was our Law and Order episode. Yes, <laughs> it very much was, actually. Um, I actually have a procedure set up for how the trial worked. They did get to talk to their ambassador friend who emphasized to them that the most important thing that they could do is to not get a death sentence. <laughs> 
if they got killed before Yurazaza came back, it might be a little harder to reverse it. But if they were just, you know, told that they were going to be in prison for however long, she can always commute the sentence. That's not even, you know, a problem for her. Um, so they talk to their ambassador friend. They, um, The Minotaur, that's the friend of our dwarven cleric, came by and let them know the state of the excavation that is waiting for them outside the city, which is one of three other pending <laughs> quests that's going on. And uh, after that, they actually have the trial. And how we had the trial set up was I had them do a group check to determine how severe the penalty was going to be. And then I had someone actually make the final check to see whether or not they were actually going to be held accountable for this crime. And to set the difficulty, I had the uh, representative from the Night of Sacred Ashes making her check to, you know, frame how bad this crime was and how bad this looked in the eyes of the law. In retrospect... I probably would not have set it up that way because I also, I had too many things going on that were going to either grant advantage and disadvantage. And the problem with advantage and disadvantage is if you have two advantage, it doesn't do you any good. If you have two, two disadvantage, it doesn't do anything. If you have both, it just cancels out. So there kind of needs to be a few different ways to adjudicate things going up and down. Um, in the end, I think it worked out all right because I determined that if they had advantage and they did something else that would give them advantage they could add a d4 to it but after i stopped and thought about it i created a little bit better structure where it would have had a set dc and the person testifying against them might have bumped the dc up or down but they weren't going to be making a check to set the dc and that way everything was just going to be you know whether or not the individual judges were happy with them or not i like that you let me roll an insight check to help the group because Dizina does not have charisma <laughs> <laughs> she is the epitome of awkward and having to make any sort of charisma role to influence the court was, was problematic for her. I like that too, though, because it, it was something that made sense to me is once you were interacting with the judges, you would be able to figure out like, okay, this one really doesn't like us, but if we play up, you know, how this is affecting the finances of the city then we might be able to get them on our side this one kind of likes us so we don't have to worry about them this one is just worried about the law and order aspect so we need to look for technicalities to bring up and i like that that you know you being able to make that insight check did give you all the the clues to get advantage from some of those judges when you were making your cases yeah overall i think i could have structured it better but i kind of liked that trial scene i don't know and how did you feel about that i liked it it was tense in part because Ivy is our most charismatic character, <laughs> but doesn't really like taking a frontline role, so to speak. So it, it took some nudging to get her to use her <laughs> eloquence to benefit the group. She's willing to, to step in and say things like, hey, don't do that. But as far as actually making a legal case in court, yeah, she was a little bit more reluctant for that. I like the way we ha I like the way the um, the evidence we had was kind of you know, able to give us advantage or that type of thing on stuff. Um, probably could have been paced out a little more. Like we could have mm -hmm. used one piece of evidence in the first part and then the other piece in the second part. Mm -hmm. um, I also really appreciated that you let me uh, retroactively say I had swiped a couple of uh, oh, yeah. of the, the, neck, the neck torture devices that they had put on the clerics. <laughs> one of which went to the Void Dragon so he could play with it and take it apart. And one that we saved <laughs> yeah. for evidence. Because you have a dangerous child with you that wants to play with a deadly magical device. <laughs> it's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> so after they they ended up not being convicted, then they went back home. They ran into 
another uh, plot point that I wanted to throw in there, which is the scroll that Anja's character has been actively keeping away from the uh, cult of Mammon, which uh, summons a very specific demon, or actually devil, that's related to her. And so now a different devil showed up and offered them an infernal puzzle box in which to hide the scroll, which would make it more secure. And that puzzle box was brought to them by an agent of Hadriel. And Hadriel is an archdevil who makes her home on the material plane and is all about basically just like subverting societies and creating secret societies within them. And she directly does not like Mammon. <laughs> the funny part about this is, oddly enough, the party did not trust an infernal puzzle box. <laughs> I don't know why having someone that has infernal tattoos and infernal show up and hand them this puzzle box made them feel uncomfortable for any reason. It's not like they had pins sticking out of their skin. <laughs> I mean, the puzzle box is the, bit at the bottom of the bay at this point, thanks to yes. Baron. Yes, our, our, our dragonborn Psy warrior, like, rode out to sea and tossed the puzzle box as far as he could. Um, so I did like, though, that Ivy was interested enough to <laughs> figure out exactly how to call Hadriel's messenger back, just in case you ever decide to do that. <laughs> I'm sure that will not come up again later in the campaign. <laughs> The other thing, though, that was nice was we also got to run a playtest, so we got to see some of the rules that we will be talking about in action in the actual game. So for our playtest, we had a Hill Giant Ken Goliath Battlemaster Fighter, a Cloud Giant Ken Goliath Bard, a Racer Ardling Paladin, who was a Triceratops, a Climber Ardling Evoker Wizard, who was a bear, and a Wood Elf Cleric. And everybody was six level for this playtest. Every time I do one of these playtests, I want to add in something that lets me interact with the influence rules. I'm not a big fan of them, but since they are in there and they are really hanging on to it's an action and you can make this one action, I want to at least see how it plays out. What's really funny is so far, I think our playtest parties have been far worse at influence than <laughs> a normal party would be. I don't know why that is, but for some reason, every time, well, actually I know why it is in the first, the first, uh, time is because the person making the influence role yeah. was not the best person trying to make the influence role. Yeah, no, the the, the person in the previous playtest was an impulsive squirrel Ardling, so. <laughs> but this time we had our cloud giant Ken Goliath Bard make the check, and the check still went badly. Now, in a regular campaign, I wouldn't have had it just go straight to, we made a bad impression on a rival adventuring party, so the rival adventuring party is going to try and kill us, but it's a playtest. So... <laughs> The rival adventuring party is camped out at the bottom of the dungeon where they were going to enter and explore, where they got hired to look into this strange magic, that's, you know, coming into the dungeon. And so the rival adventuring party pulls their weapons. And at this point, the hill giant Goliathkin, who was specked out for grappling, runs up to one person, locks them down, moves to the next person, locks them down, <laughs> and just basically chained from one person in the party to another, locking people down. And if he had more than two arms, he probably would have had the entire uh, rival adventuring party locked down. And they were clustered so nicely for a yeah. fireball. Yeah. Well, and it also, it didn't, well, man, there's just so much to go into. I will say that this playtest has definitely highlighted something that a friend of the show, Brandis Stoddard, had pointed out, which is when the only way to break a grapple is to make a save at the end of your turn, no one is ever going to successfully get away from a grapple because even if you're successful, the grappler is going to act again and then grapple you. You're not going to be able to get away from them or do anything. You're just going to get grappled again. Yeah, the grappling rules were broken. 
it was fun. It was fun. I mean, Bowie was having a blast. <laughs> because it was a playtest, I did not protest too much, but it was a little murder hoboey. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, two two of the rival adventuring party said, screw this, we're out, and took off running. And because the, the hill giant Goliathkin was hasted, <laughs> he just basically ran up to both of them, grabbed them, pulled them back, and threw them in the fire <laughs> with the rest of the adventuring party. Because he was just, like, pulling adventuring party members and dropping them in the fire <laughs> during this fight. <laughs> Which proves my point that if you put a fire on a battle map, somebody will throw someone in. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't actually think that that broke. I don't think the grappling rules completely broke any of the encounters, but they're just so extreme. Yeah. If you lock someone down and you don't have a way to deal with it, it's going to be a problem. Now, thankfully, as we'll see with some of the other encounters, some of the other things that he grappled did not have the same weaknesses as humanoids do, <laughs> i.e. you're stuck where you're at right now. And also, once you go prone, you're really screwed. That was just an ugly encounter all the way through. <laughs> so the next thing, they get up into the Broken Horn, which was the dungeon, and they're basically going into a tower from the bottom of the tower up. So they go into the first section of the tower. The tower had a ring that was open and dropped 40 feet down. This is what's funny to me is having a circular room that is about 10 feet across really messes with people for where they put their, uh, <laughs> where they put their, uh, their tokens at on the uh, board. But in this instance, the grappling did not stop things quite as much. And they ran into zombie beholders. Uh, it was still kind of amusing seeing the, the hill giant grappler, running around with zombie beholders by holding them by the uh, eye stalks <laughs> like rotting balloons. But given that, you know, the enervation and disintegration rays were just as deadly whether or not he had them grappled, that really didn't change that encounter near as much as the grappling did with the rival adventuring party. Yeah, that was a tough encounter. Oh, yeah. Really, if I had rolled just a little bit higher, your cleric would have been disintegrated. Uh-huh. <laughs> we did get to see the new turn undead, and I like that it does damage. Like, I wasn't sure that the extra damage was going to be that great of a kicker to throw on to turn undead, but realizing that if those beholders had lasted like one extra round and got another disintegrate off, that could have killed a party member. Those extra hit points of damage that the turn did was actually important to be doing there. Yeah. So I kind of like that addition to uh, turn undead. So after they survived the beholders, um, they moved to a part of the facility that was run by a Modron. <laughs> I wanted to give them a chance to take a rest, but I also wanted to justify it in the story of this thing. I put way too much story into playtest. I know. <laughs> you don't need to tell me. But um, the Modrons had a basically a curing chamber where you could pay money and the chamber would aid you. And so if you, took, if you had the curing chamber aid you by an hour, it was the same as getting a short rest. We pretty so much we all some, took use of it. Yeah, everybody basically paid the Modron to let them take short rests. And they also requisitioned some magic items because the Modron was a subcontractor that would order items for whoever was in charge of the facility. Now, that was literally whoever was in charge of the facility. So the person that first set this up was not the person that was currently in charge of the facility, but it's a Modron. He doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't care that there's now an Ulotharid that's in charge of the facility because his job is just running this desk on this floor. <laughs> So actually, I mean, we get, we had some people get, I, and I wanted to make it to where treasure wasn't completely useless in a short-term thing, which is part of why I wanted to let you buy some magic items in there. Well, I was and thinking I, about it I, too. I the, the, the general rule, and this is like a fifth edition thing, yeah. the general guidelines for starting characters at the level we were at was 
they don't have magic items. Yeah. But you show me a sixth level character yes. who has been played since first or third level who doesn't have magic items. Yeah. Like that's mm, that's not like the what the book says is not what actually happens in play. Oh, definitely. Um, then they go up to the top level. They meet the Ulatharid, who, if anyone hasn't perused your books, an Ulatharid is basically just a large-sized illithid. It is a really big mind flare. And it had all of these pools that were basically pulling in dead aberration flesh and making them into new things. So I had an Ulatharid and some Boneless, which are some undead that show up in uh, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And the Boneless did not last for very long. One of them hugged our hill giant kin grappler. <laughs> <laughs> Gave him a nice wet hug, and then it went away pretty quickly. They, the, the boneless were speed bumps. Yeah, really. And I'll get into this in a second. But yeah, they did not figure into that encounter much at all. What was fun with the Ulatharid fight is that even once the grappler locked down the Ulatharid, it basically mind-blasted the whole party, and that stunned a good number of people, which then helped it get some breathing room. And it also used a mass suggestion after it had taken a whole lot of damage in part because the bard managed to cast haste again, this time on the paladin. So the paladin was just going smite happy on the Ulatharid. <laughs> I liked my suggestion that I came up with. The suggestion that the Ulatharid managed to hit most of the party with was you should really go home and clarify from the person that hired you exactly what you're supposed to be doing here. <laughs> so then... Everybody except for the bard and the Ardling wizard decided to go ask for clarification on what they were supposed to be doing. The, the bard was was stunned, so couldn't yes. actually act, which left yeah. it to Bruna. <laughs> yes. Tell us how Bruna finished up this fight. <laughs> so just to clarify, Bruna was a bear Ardling. She was six foot 11, former <laughs> bouncer. I basically created the background of bouncer, which had the feet of tavern brawler. She picked thing up. She put thing down. She set thing on fire. <laughs> she was so much fun to play because I played with a very bad Russian accent <laughs> and it was so awesome with the finale because everyone is out. The bard is stunned. He can't act. Everyone else in the party has fallen victim to the suggestion and is about to leave, which leaves Bruna. The Ulatharid comes over, tries to eat her brain. And then I remembered, I'm a wizard. I have shield. No, you don't. Which meant I blocked it, <laughs> at which point I knew he only had a couple of hit points left. And so I decided that since he was right there trying to eat Bruna's brain, that Bruna was going to make use of her tavern brawler feet and headbutt him. <laughs> and I succeeded and did enough damage that I killed the Ul Ulatharid with a headbutt from my wizard. It was, it was glorious. I loved it. That was so great. Oh, one of the things I was going to say is um, trying to make encounters that are balanced we had five players. Now, granted, we kind of went from having seven to six to five, so I rebuilt these <laughs> encounters multiple times. But even having five people, it throws off the math really weird because I was trying to make some of the fights like moderate and some of them hard, and it was very hard to... You would add one thing, and it bumped it all the way up into hard. So I was really playing with what I could add to some of these encounters because, like, for the Ulatharid... I didn't want anything else to be a major danger, but I did want there to be some speed bump so you couldn't go straight to the Ulatharid. And it's it's tricky. Um, encounter building is just a weird thing in 5e. And as as Ange noted, I don't even know that D&D &D Beyond does it exactly the way it's <laughs> supposed to because I think the boneless were actually too low of, of a CR 
to figure into that encounter, and yet they did, and they, you know, they multiplied how hard that fight was supposed to be. I do think the fight was still challenging. The fight was still challenging. I mean, one one failed saving throw from Bruna, and it would have been over. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would have had everyone leaving the bard there to die. You know. Yes. <laughs> This was a much more balanced party, though, because we had an actual frontline fighter. We had a cleric. We had the Mm -hmm. wizard. So it was much more balanced as far as compared to the the previous playtest. Yeah, I think that was the thing that I noticed with having a one D&D bard in this party. Um, Currently in 5e, I really think you can have a bard in the party instead of a cleric to be serving that same function that a cleric does in a slightly different way. I don't think that's true of the one D&D bard, but if you have a party, like we mentioned, where we had two frontline fighters and a wizard and a cleric, the bard then gets to do all of that support stuff that makes the other people shine. I will say, though, the the player of the bard still felt that the bard was underpowered. Because oh, he yeah, made definitely. a comment on that afterwards. Without, yeah. He wasn't part of our previous playtest. Because right. the person who played the bard in the previous playtest was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, it did seem like the, the bard, from my perspective running it again, looked more pivotal in this. But they definitely could not have subbed in for what the cleric's doing. Yeah, they could not have subbed in for either the cleric or the wizard. They just don't have enough arcade oomph. Um, and they don't have enough healing. No, it was the best thing that he could do is what he was doing, which was, you know, pasting people and then giving them minor healing so they weren't making death saves. And, you know, that was basically what he was doing. Uh, it seems like the Goliaths were pretty popular with how they did. Um, I think everybody liked the Goliaths pretty pretty much. The, the teleporting was popular enough that our bard ran himself out of teleports <laughs> just because he was having fun teleporting. <laughs> Not to mention describing his clouds. <laughs> he loved describing his clouds. I think the Ardlings are popular too, except it seems like they're really good at a niche thing. They're not good at a broad thing. I'll actually get into this later when we start talking about the new species added to the playtest document. I have some thoughts on it. I mean, I have loved both of the Ardlings I've played, Mm -hmm. but I have some concerns. I love the concept. Yeah. To me, outside of the turn undead, the life cleric did not feel like it was a lot different than what a life cleric would be like in 5e. Yeah. That was my thoughts, you know, just from that place. But... On that note, let's move into the Dungeon Master's Workshop, where we're going to be looking at the one D&D playtest that came around this time around. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Okay, so before we get into the specifics of the Cleric class, there is a few additional pieces of information that we learned about class design from one D&D in this document. The first one being that the subclass levels aren't just being standardized within the class groups, but across the board. So how do you feel about every class getting their subclasses at 3rd, 6th, 10th, and 14th level? On a mechanical level, I like this. I know there's some narrative fiddly bits that are going to feel weird with classes like the Sorcerer and the Warlock who get some of their flavor at first level by choosing their subclass right away. But I think that all can be worked out with narrative framing. I do think that this will make things smoother across the board for classes, not to mention it addresses some of the level dipping hijinks that happen with multi-classing. In the early days of 5e, I didn't think I would see <laughs> multi-classing in this version of D&D, and I was quite proven wrong, because you can <laughs> still level dip to get cool stuff, and it's like, oh, okay. And it's not that multi-classing is a bad thing, it's just that usually when I see it's done, it's just for like, I'm gonna do it to just get this cool thing. Like, an example is the going into, you know, a first-level cleric, life cleric, you get that bonus to healing and then you become a druid and you've got good berry and you make powerful good berries. Yeah. I do hope they add some narrative 
framework to why things are this way because it it does some of the subclasses are so integral to the character you want to have a reason why they don't have those things until third level um and i do think they'll need to add a little bit of that narrative thing to stuff there's already some awkwardness in 5e as it stands now from the 2014 rules because i think it feels weird that paladins don't swear their oath until third level because their devotion comes from you know what they believe in and they'll tell you what they believe in as soon as they hit third level (laughs) and i know (laughs) a lot of people already have that in mind and they're already playing their character that way but i mean that's kind of a disconnect to begin with so now you're going to have a little bit more of that disconnect with sorcerers and warlocks too. It's going to feel awkward, but you know, we'll see what happens with that. As far as other classes, I don't think it's a big deal because for example, wizards and druids getting their subclass at second level is just so weird because it's like, here's these, these ones that have it at first, here's these at third, and here's a couple at second. I don't know why any of that shook out the way it Yeah, did. <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. All right, so another additional piece of information that was added is that if the final subclass design stays the way it is presented in the current 1D&D playtest, there's going to be conversion rules for older subclasses. So what are your thoughts on this? If they want 1D&D or whatever it's going to be called in the future to be compatible with 5e, then they are absolutely going to have to provide a way to use previously existing subclasses and get them aligned with the new paradigm of level design. Either you start fresh or you provide ways to convert that older stuff into the newer version. Mm-hmm. To be completely fair, I like balance. One of the reasons I disliked second edition was how unbalanced the classes were. And I know there are folks who have legitimate reasons to argue with me about this, but I like them balancing the classes together um, so that everyone is getting their subclass features at the same time. Mm. I know back in the days of third edition, there was talk of dead levels where you would gain a level and you get absolutely nothing except some hit points for it. Those were always not fun. They tried to fix it in Pathfinder. They've tried to address it in 4th edition and 5th edition. And I don't think 5th edition really has any quote-unquote dead levels. But at the same time, different groups' subclasses had drastically different spans between when you got your special ability. And that's... Let's just even that out. Make get the cool let everyone get the cool stuff at the same time. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I do think this was added into this document because after the last playtest released, there was a lot of talk about how people thought this was going to be more backward compatible than the last document made things look. So I can see why they want to kind of get ahead of that message because when they were talking about one DD before we ever saw any of the playtest information. They were saying supplements were going to be backwards compatible. They weren't saying adventures or monsters were. They were saying things like Tasha's and, you know, Fizzbands, all of that was going to be backward compatible as well. So if they really want that to be the case, and I'm still seeing a lot of people online saying they don't care about it being backwards compatible, it's really sixth edition, they really do need to hammer that message home. But I can also see where they don't necessarily want to try and do a lot of design work making those previous things compatible until they know for sure what they're going to do with those things too. It's kind of the catch-22 of the open playtest thing, you know? There's a whole lot of subclasses offered in Xanathar's and Tasha's, and then there's the species that are offered in Mordenkainen's. And if you want those to be available in whatever this next version is going to be, there's going to need to be conversion guidelines. Because how do you handle somebody wanting to play a changeling out of Mordenkainen's and still deal with the background information that they've already provided for 1D&D? And every bard subclass does not have a 10th level ability. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if, if you know, 1D&D 
has all these 10th level abilities and bard subclasses, people are probably going to gravitate towards those over the ones that don't give you anything at that level. <laughs> All right, so our first big change with the Cleric is that the subclass has moved up to third level, but Ch Channel Divinity has moved down to first level. Channel Divinity gets a new generic option, which is Divine Spark, and it can be triggered to either do damage to characters at range or to heal someone at range. How do you think this is going to change how a low-level Cleric is played? Um, I like this change so far. Um, I know there's some narrative concern about how a low-level Cleric doesn't have their domain, since the domain should be tied to the god they worship, but at the same time... Most of the gods have multiple domains, so... Yeah, that's what I had thought, too. Like, not having a domain doesn't mean you haven't followed a god. It means you haven't gone into one branch of that god's clergy yet. Right. You know, it's ultimately all narrative flavoring, so I don't have a problem with them shifting the subclass, i.e. the domain, to third level. Um, I kind of already said my piece on that. I do like the redesign to Channel Divinity. This is the one case I've seen where the proficiency bonus is an improvement over the previous version. <laughs> Sort of, though, because you don't get anything back on a on a short rest unless you take the right holy order. Yeah, yeah. It, it's probably a wash in the end, considering current version is a set number of times per day, but it resets on a short rest, mm -hmm. whereas the 1D&D version is number of times based on proficiency bonus, but resets on a long rest. But it's not quite as obviously restrictive as some of the other per proficiency bonus things we've seen right i mean i really really do not like them tying things to the proficiency bonus like this i want my players to use their cool abilities and by limiting it to proficiency bonus this means they get to use it twice for most of the early levels i don't think they get proficiency bonus plus three until fifth level i already have trouble getting my young bard player to use <laughs> bardic inspiration i don't want to create a situation where they're so concerned about wasting their resources that they don't ever use their cool stuff and to me that's what tying this stuff to proficiency bonus is going to do what's interesting is when they first started using the per proficiency bonus thing in like a lot of subclasses it seemed like it came up for like the big pop things that you got in middle middle or later levels mm -hmm. but when you start using it to design classes too that means everything is being streamlined into the same thing not just those higher level things that you get for your subclass that aren't meant to necessarily go off all the time they're just the thing that you know once once or twice a day you want to go boom this is what i did i want my bards to be able to use bardic inspiration i really do so our next thing that changes for the cleric is that you pick a holy order at second level and you choose between protector scholar or thaumaturge at ninth level they can pick a second holy order so what does this do for the cleric i kind of love this it reminds me of the way the fighter <laughs> chooses their fighting style at low level. Um, and I think this helps flavor the clerics nicely without having to tie it to their domain. I love the idea of being able to make the book smart cleric versus the battle cleric without having to have all of that built into the god they worship and the domain they choose. Because it would make sense that a holy order for a particular deity would have the fighters in their clergy and then the people who are knowledgeable in the clergy, you know, and those who are better with the magic. I, I actually really love this, and I think it's a nice addition to the cleric. I'd never really thought about this before. It kind of takes that whole, are we going to give them heavy armor and martial weapons out of the design for the subclass and puts it into the cleric itself. And I really like this too. If you have a cleric of like the Red Knight in the Forgotten Realms, she is a god of strategy. So you could still have a war cleric that is a scholar uh -huh. because that's showing that, you know, this is a scholar of strategy, not necessarily a frontline fighter type but still having that war domain. Yeah. 
So I like how it gives you that kind of specialization with the cleric and what they can do. I also think it's neat because it seems like you could do a lot of different design by coming up with other holy orders. It's a fun design space where you can add in other things like, you know, what other type of cleric could you do where you give them some minor ability that they get up front that kind of tells you what kind of order they belong to. Yeah. So I, I really like this. I actually am pretty happy with it. The only thing that I will say is I don't think picking a second holy order at ninth level does much for them. Because by the time you're ninth level, I don't know what that really gets you. I think it would be more interesting to have the choice at ninth level be either adding a new holy order or adding an additional benefit to the order they have. I totally agree. If your character concept really, really wants you to diversify into, yeah, I'm a fighter, but I'm also kind of really interested in, in magic too, so I want to pick up Thaumaturge, that would be cool. But then if there was also some other extra thing you get if you wanted to double down on being a double protector, that would be kind of neat. So yeah, that one's actually, I'm pretty happy about that one. So at fifth level now, the cleric gets Smite Undead. So in addition to this change, Turn Undead now references the dazed condition instead of just telling you that the undead are running away from the cleric. Smite Undead does extra damage to the undead and replaces the automatic destruction of undead of a certain challenge rating. So what is this going to look like at the table? And we did actually get to see a little bit of this. We did. We did get to see the, the turn undead happen. And so I suppose Dazed allows the undead to just stand there instead of running away. Because mm -hmm. I have played in those situations where the turn undead was done on the horde of zombies and you see several of the zombies disappearing into the distance to go alert God knows what else. Yeah further on into this dungeon or wherever we are. But at the same time, I don't know why this change was necessary because the turn still breaks when they take damage. Mm -hmm. That said, I think Smite Undead is way better than Destroy Undead. Destroy is nice in theory, but the CR of the affected monsters are so... Basically, it rarely comes into play. Mm -hmm. By the time you can destroy undead, the undead you can destroy are so low level, you're probably never going to be interacting with them. Yeah. Sure, you may have a GM decide to throw a, a horde of zombies at you just for the flavor and for the crunch, all, you know, minions, crunch all you want, we'll make more. But at the <laughs> same time, it's not that useful. I prefer the the blanket level damage that the, mm -hmm. the new smite undead adds to the turn. This is one, it really did help me to see it in play because I was thinking at first, there are some low level things, especially undead, that have a decent amount of hit points. So even though they're not great, they do act as kind of a, a hit point buffer between the, the boss monster and you know you as you're trying to cut these things down to get to the boss. And I was thinking, man, some of those things are relatively low CR, so it was kind of nice just to destroy them off the bat. But seeing that it took a decent chunk out of that one Beholder zombie and it mm -hmm. kept it from doing another IRA, yeah, I think this is a good change. I really do. Because it, it's relevant to whatever CR undead you're fighting. Dazed is weird because that's a new condition that didn't exist before. And I'm almost certain that you're going to have monsters that are immune to dazed. And if you make, say, undead immune to dazed, and if you give, say, a fighter the ability to, say, hit something with their sword and daze something, you might want undead to be immune to that, but not immune to turning. Yeah. And if you don't separate those you're going to end up making a bunch of undead that are immune to turning accidentally. Yeah, that is that is a problem. Because currently, turn undead is essentially the same thing as making them afraid of you, but it doesn't refer to them being afraid, so it doesn't reference the fear condition. So being immune to being afraid doesn't make any undead immune to being turned. It's one of those things that happens when you define a lot of things and then realize how many things 
kind of get tacked onto that definition once it exists. Yeah, they may need they may need a different term, a different condition than dazed. Mm-hmm. If they're going to, like you said, give a bunch of things immunity to being dazed. Yeah. So, um, Blessed Strikes at 7th level replaces an ability that usually appeared in the Cleric subclasses, and that ability was usually either you do extra damage with your melee attack, or you do your wisdom bonus damage to your cantrip attack. Now, any cantrip or weapon attack gets extra radiant damage at this level. So, how do we feel about this? I kind of like it. It's kind of like the Cleric's own little version of sneak attack damage. (laughs) Faith attack damage. Um, I generally like anything that helps make the cantrips more viable in combat. Mm -hmm. Um, the scaling of damage cantrips was one of the best things they added to 5e. Yeah. And I always like seeing ways to boost that just a little bit more because they really are like having played Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. I was so disappointed (laughs) in the cantrips. Yeah. It doesn't matter that I can cast it as much as I want. It's useless. (laughs) I can also hit something with a rock as much as I want to, too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I do like that this one isn't tied just to cantrips. I like Mm. that it's tied to any attack they, you know, any melee attack they make because some clerics just want to punch evil in the face. They don't care about their spells. (laughs) Their spells are utilitary utility stuff, or I'm going to heal your sorry butt once this fight is over. Otherwise, they just want to get in there with their sword or their mace or whatever it is and, you know, mess it up in combat. So this is nice that it basically helps both types of cleric equally well. One of the things that I do like about this is every cleric subclass at 8th level, this was the feature. Like, you either get that bonus to cantrips or you get the (laughs) melee bonus. And it's like, it made a lot of domains that could have had some neat little thing that had to do with the domain not have another neat thing that had to do with the domain. And it was just the same choice over and over again. Like, is this more of a caster domain or is this more of a a melee domain? But that really doesn't do much about the actual domain. So I like that they pulled this out of the subclass and put it into the main class. The only thing that I'm going to say is, since my favoritest, favoritest cleric that I played was a grave cleric, (laughs) I really liked having my plus five bonus to wisdom at this level instead of rolling an extra die because I knew it would do at least five plus those extra dice. Whereas now, if you get an extra bonus die, you could roll low on it. (laughs) But I'm not, that's not a deal breaker for me. It's just, I do kind of miss that idea where I'm just going to, I'm just going to add roll 2d12 on my toll the dead plus five <laughs> it, it does add the excitement of getting the crit hit where you get to roll double the damage you are correct so like because because i know how exciting it is as a rogue to get a crit on your sneak attack damage mm-hmm. which is why we we didn't like that in the first play test document that was bad Exactly. So Divine Intervention now shifts from 10th level to 11th level, and it is fundamentally unchanged. It does give you a little bit more guidelines, which is basically saying, yeah, if the god responds, they're going to give you some kind of effect that's similar to a divine spell. But it's just basically saying some divine spell. If they want to give you a 9th level spell, that's up to you, Mr. Dungeon Master or Ms. Dungeon Master. It (laughs) doesn't matter. It also changes the recharge from 7 days to a variable 2d6. And Greater Divine Intervention now comes at 18th level instead of 20th level because we have that whole epic boon thing coming in at 20th level. But additional ability with that 18th level is that it shifts from 2d6 days to 2d4 days. So how does this line up for clerical play? To be completely honest, even though I played a 5e cleric to 20th level, I remember so little about her high level abilities. (laughs) Um, I don't think I ever actually used Divine Intervention, though... 
she had a good relationship with her god. Uh, mostly because these were really fun scenes for me and the GM to play out where, you know, suddenly my blue dragonborn cleric would wake up in some sort of Al house lodge for Cord and show up and have a drink with him and <laughs> talk about what was going on and get some instruction and then get sent back on my way. He called Zalus Sparky. He was a blue <laughs> dragonborn. And he ended up giving her one of my magic items was an endless mug of ale, which, you know, I could drain it and then just tip it and it was full again. She was the life of the party. But I never actually used divine intervention. So I'm honestly not sure how this plays up because I've never played a cleric in a game where we mechanically used or depended on this at all. I have used divine intervention, but I have never successfully used <laughs> divine intervention. <laughs> It was really funny because they were discussing this on uh, Edition Wars and they kept mentioning that this was a Hail Mary option. I'm like, it actually is kind of literally a Hail Mary option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it is. Like, I have I have no other idea how to get us out of the situation other than to directly ask, ask my god, hey, could you do something here? <laughs> could you do me a salad? <laughs> the only real thing that I have against this is I don't like it randomly recharging. It feels weird to say, you know, sometimes your god... We'll let you do this again in two days. Sometimes it's 12 and it just depends on how they wake up that morning. Depends on their mood. It's a randomizer that I don't think tells a story because there's no reason for that randomness. I almost wish it would tell you like until you perform this ritual, which you obviously can't do while you're still in the same adventure. So you're not going to divine adventure your divine intervention twice in the same adventure. You don't get it back. You know, I would I would rather have something like that. Yeah. Like, you can't do this until you spend 24 hours in prayer without sleeping. And, you know, you're not going to do that in the middle of an adventure. So, you know, it's just something like that to where it's not quite as arbitrary. That just feels weird to me. But that's me. Unsurprisingly, um, the subclass that we get for the cleric in this document is the life domain cleric. Probably one of the most popular subclasses of clerics that there is. Their theme with the subclasses they present seems to be, we are going to give you the most version of this class in the subclass definitely like the life cleric the lore bard the thief <laughs> so with the life domain they have shifted the bonus spells from healing and helpful magic to pretty much all being stuff that is healing or removing conditions so half the spells have been changed but they really still it's all healing type things but you don't get bonus prepared spells for first level anymore because of when the subclasses kick in do you think this is in the long run going to be a major change Maybe. I don't think it's that painful for first and second characters to not have bonus spells. It makes them a little more careful about what they have prepared, but I don't see that as being too harmful. What I don't like about this is I wish the bonus spells you got retroactively included a couple of first level spells. Because mm-hmm. um, right now it starts at third level and you get what you get. And, you know, having Cure Wounds as a bonus spell is pretty solid for a cleric. That should be one of the bonus spells they don't have to prepare for a life cleric. And the fact that they do because it's not a bonus spell anymore, it's a little concerning. I'd like to see them retroactively add a couple of first level spells to the list of bonus spells. Yeah, I think I'm on the same page with you there. I I don't think it's going to be too much of a pain in the butt for first or second level clerics, but I do think it's weird that it by the time you get your subclass, you're not getting that extra benefit of having something related to your domain that you don't have to worry about preparing every day. Yeah. Even though you don't get it until third, I still think it would be fine to add first level spells into that prepared list. I, I would like to see that, honestly. So Discipline of Life is now more intentionally worded to make sure that you only get your bonus 
on healing when your spell actively and directly heals a target. Are we going to miss supercharged life domain good berries? I mean, of course we're going to miss the loopholes. <laughs> to be fair, though, I don't remember actually ever seeing this used and therefore abused. <laughs> Probably mostly because everyone I know playing clerics chose other domains, and I never had anyone egregious enough with their multiclassing to just dip one level into cleric. I think I'm fine with it, too. Like, I hear a lot of people talk about that online, and I have never actually run across it personally. Normally, when I say something like that, it's like, I've seen it when I was playing a lot of Adventurers League. I didn't even see it in Adventurers League, but apparently it is a thing. I'm not going to say it isn't a thing. So, okay, you want to close that loophole? Close the loophole. The only thing I'm going to say is, it does seem like a lot of 1D&D is saying, oh, we didn't mean that to happen. <laughs> Let's make sure we cut that out as long as we're doing this. All right, so now um, Preserve Life moves back to 6th level from 3rd level. So that's a bit of a bump upwards and because of the standardized subclass level. How do we feel about moving back this clutch healing move 3 levels? I mean, this is a really nice thing to get at 3rd level, but it's also a really nice thing to get at 6th level. So, well, I do think that there, you know, people who have experience with the 5e version and are used to getting it at third level will be disappointed that they have to wait a few more levels, but it's still a really, it's a, it's a really nice, powerful healing move that, uh, I mean, if this is where they needed to shuffle it to, I'm, I'm, I'm not that mad. Yeah. I think what's, what's interesting to me about this is it seemed like they kept your domain spells as being the primary things you got at third now that they moved everything back. So they move this one back one too. And there are subclasses where you get more than one thing at a level. I could easily see them making this another thing that you get at third level. Granted, I guess if somebody really wants to dip for three levels to get two <laughs> things from their subclass. But, you know, once somebody's taking three levels in a class, it doesn't feel like a dip to me anymore. I, I don't know. I, I think bumping everything up one level just to fit that new paradigm is not necessarily the best way to do this. And it's actually more interesting to me when we talk about the next ability, which gets bumped from 6th to 10th. So let's go into that one now, which is Blessed Healer moves from 6th back to 10th level, meaning that that extra boost that you get to yourself when you cast healing spells on someone else to keep you on your feet because you're the party healer isn't going to kick in for four levels. So how do you think that's going to affect the efficiency of our life cleric here? Yeah, I mean, this is another one that it's nice to get when you get it in 5e, but it's also <laughs> still nice to get when you get it here. Yeah, it's not a bad ability to get at any level. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's not like with the bard. There were a couple of things with the bard that I'm like, they're getting this way too late. Yeah, um, like there's things they should be getting earlier in their leveling. I'm not mad about this. I definitely understand people being disappointed, not being able to get it earlier, but I mean, we had a life cleric in our playtest, a six level one, and she proved quite adept at keeping the party alive and on their feet. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you, Jared doesn't pull punches in his playtest. <laughs> I'm much nicer in my regular campaign. He is. He is much nicer in the campaign than he is in the playtests. I, I bear the GM fangs a little bit more in the playtests. <laughs> So I have to admit, I am much more versed in trickery and grave domain with the clerics that I've played in 5th edition because I do play clerics a lot. It feels like if you're going to lean heavily on your life domain cleric to keep you on your feet, it is nice to have that side effect where the life domain cleric doesn't have to use any of their actions or their resources to keep themselves on their feet in case something decides to take out your healer. Like, I don't know, a beholder trying to disintegrate them. But... <laughs> 
again, I, I'm saying this a lot with this playtest. This does not feel like a deal breaker nearly as much as like you were saying with some of the bard abilities. Yeah, the bard been done dirty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one ability that's been moved down in level is Supreme Healing, which moves down to 14th level from 17th level. Other than the level change, this one also has the Goodberry loophole where you must be directly applying this healing <laughs> when you're casting something and not, you know, for something someone gets healed with later. So changing this from 17th to 14th level, is this going to change play for the life domain cleric a lot? I don't know that I'd say that it's going to change play, but I definitely think it makes the life domain cleric even more powerful as a healer at a level when it's really going to matter. Um, not that it doesn't matter at 17th level, but I will say getting this at 14th level seems more useful for the party at a time when they're really starting to get into more epic level fights. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably a good thing. I think what's interesting to me is at least from what we have seen in a lot of fifth edition published adventures, 14th level is actually a lot closer to being what your real capstone ability is going to be versus 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. This is kind of making it so that at least if you're playing through like a standard published adventure, you're probably going to get a chance to do this as you're, you know, making your boss fights in the final level of the dungeon or whatever. Yeah, there's there's a lot more play left in a campaign between, you know, from 14th level up than there is from 17th level up. Yeah, definitely. All right. So like the classes section, we get some broader ins information on the aspect of the game in the next section, which we see in one D&D is moving away from the term race to the term species. What are your thoughts on this change? It's kind of funny. Uh, species is the term I've been defaulting to as I try and move away from the term race, but I don't necessarily like it. I think this is absolutely a necessary change. And I think the term species is actually a bit more useful than the term ancestry, which is what Pathfinder has been using and other people were suggesting for D&D to use. But to be fair, anything Wizards chose was going to be awkward for the long-term players. Race is a term that is deeply embedded in the long history of the game, and many of the things that evolved from D&D use it as well. I mean, it's in most of the video games that take inspiration from D&D. This is a necessary change, but there are going to be some growing pains. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't think anyone... Okay, I am completely wrong when I say that. There <laughs> will be lots of people that will say that race doesn't need to be changed. I don't think anyone that understands the baggage that comes along with the term race would disagree that this is a change that needs to be done in modern language. I kind of liked Ancestry. I don't know if they're shying away from Ancestry because Pathfinder uses it, but Shadow of the Demon Lord actually used Ancestry before Pathfinder did, so who knows? I kind of liked ancestry for the primary and lineage for the, you know, for what would replace subrace. But the thing that I kind of wanted to point out is one, Watsi hired people to come up with this term. This wasn't something that they just wanted to come up with on their own because this isn't a game design issue. This is a social sensitivity issue. So what they're floating here is not like what a bunch of game designers came up with this is what an outside group that they paid came up with also they also said this is not necessarily final it's just this is what the people they paid said try this and the other thing is i can say i'm not in love with species and it doesn't sound great for me for a fantasy game but i'm also not the person that is hurt by the baggage that comes with using race as a term yeah so as much as i can have preferences i'm not the main person that really needs to be happy with this concept the Ardling has been changed from being primarily a celestial-related re species that happens to have 
animal bits to being an animal humanoid species that happens to have celestial bits. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of picking an upper plane to determine a set of effects that you get at first, third, and fifth, you now pick a creature type and you get all of your features up front. Is this the Ardling that we wanted to see? <laughs> so I played an Ardling in our first playtest, my uh, Squirrel Ardling Thief Rogue Nori. Uh, and now in our second playtest, I played a Bear Ardling Evoker Wizard, Bruna. Um, so I have a bit of fondness for the species. I do think the shift of focus was necessary for this. I, I had a lot of hesitation about the Ardling when I first read it because I'm like, why, why? Why aren't they using the Asimar? What did the Asimar do to piss them off that it's not here instead? That said, I'm not really happy with the the way the abilities were swapped. Mm -hmm. I know that the Ardling sub-features really make... I don't think they make up for the loss of the Divine Magic that they got at higher levels in the previous version. Um, the flexible cantrip is nice, but the physical abilities your animal type gives you doesn't really make up for the magic you were getting at higher levels. So I think this is a step in the right direction. I'm just not sure I'm completely happy with this as the final form of the Ardling. It's really funny because everything that I look at online, people seem to really like this concept, except that the concept is not well-defined enough to know what, <laughs> exactly. what to really do with it. <laughs> they didn't put enough narrative beef into the Ardling's description to make you understand what you were actually dealing with. Yeah, it seemed like the first go around, and you heard this more from watching the videos than the description of the play in, in the, the playtest, was that these were supposed to like bring to mind things like archons, like hound archons or something. So basically, you're talking about like angels that come from folkloric traditions where angels have different you know types of animal heads and that is not what people seem to want these to be you keep your opinions about furries <laughs> to yourself people wanted their anthropomorphic animals mm -hmm. oh yeah the most important thing for me when i put our uh, nori together was does she have a tail because as a squirrel ardling she needs a tail mm -hmm. you know this was important to me so i just went with that as flavor regardless of whether or not the actual document said she would have a tail and it seems like from watching the videos again i don't know if it's expressed as well in the the document they kind of shifted from okay these are related to archons to okay the beast lands is this outer plane where you have a bunch of intelligent animals and these are a species related to those intelligent animals from the beast lands i think that's a better story for them but i also think that instead of trying to give them divine spells then you probably want them to have more primal spells part of me is like they're only doing this because they didn't want to include the tabaxi in the base document because <laughs> they got something against cats. I, I have heard a bunch of people say they have cat people. Why can't they have dog people? So exactly. <laughs> I think this is one of those things where they hit on something that is resonating, but they can't quite define it as well as they want to yet. <laughs> yeah. All right. So our primary change with the Dragonborn was to make its breath weapon align with how the Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons Dragonborn use their breath weapon. Except that this version can also pick the shape of its breath weapon when it's using it. It also loses the innate ability to speak Draconic, and it, it picks up limited flight at fifth level. So what are our thoughts on this version of the Dragonborn? To be fair, I wasn't really that well versed in the differences between the base game Dragonborn and the one presented in Fizzbends. That said, I think the ability to shift the shape of your breath weapon is really cool. Mm -hmm. It makes it much more useful depending upon the situation you're in and makes a fair amount of sense in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I also really like the draconic flight they can get at fifth level. That's some fun stuff right there. Just the limited, I mean, cause it's not endless flight. It's not unlimited. It's like you get to move your movement as flight. Make sure you're on a solid surface when you, f you finish. 
Yeah. But that's that's pretty cool. I'm also not really upset at the loss of Draconic as a language, since I could totally make the case for a Dragonborn that doesn't speak Draconic because they didn't grow up with anybody that spoke it. It's like I have a friend who is half Japanese. He doesn't speak Japanese. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows a few words here and there, but he does not speak the language fluently. It happens. It's interesting because it seemed like they really wanted to move away from rolling cultural things into species because they just wanted things that are not biological determinism, mm -hmm. but just physically different things about a species. But they also kind of wanted to flavor that draconic as draconic as this magic language that just <laughs> happens to dragons. And it's like, I don't know that that takes away my ability to tell a story of a dragonborn that was raised by people that weren't dragonborn. Yeah. You know, and that should be one of the stories you can tell with something, you know? What I think is funny is I like the Fizzband's version of the breath weapon because I like that idea that, like, if you're a fighter dragonborn, you know, you can hit someone, breathe on them, and then hit them again if you have three attacks. That makes perfect sense to me. But then I started thinking, I have never seen our dragonborn <laughs> use his breath weapon in combat. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's never used it. I, I will um, say I find that the unless you tailor a dragonborn to be good in whatever stat your DC of your breath weapon is, mm -hmm. your breath weapon's not that useful. I mean, I kind of run into the same thing with Kazina. I still do. Um, what is the tiefling ability? Um, oh, um, or the reaction when I get hit. Yeah, hellish rebuke. Yeah. When yeah, I still do it because half damage is nothing to sneeze at, but it's based on charisma. <laughs> you know, yeah. that means her DC's really kind of low because this is Kazina. <laughs> what I think is funny, like that, that fifth level ability in Fizzbands is different for chromatic or gem or metallic. And this is kind of taking, I think one of those three got this option. It's a little bit, it's worded a little bit different, but I think I like the fact that they kind of picked the one that's probably the most obvious fifth level ability to give a dragonborn. Yeah. Because they've been saying this is supposed to be the generic dragonborn. Like if you want it to get more, more granular, you can still use the ones in fizz bands, but this is like your generic. Here's a dragonborn that should work for any kind of dragonborn. You want a dragonborn. I don't, I don't see why they couldn't have offered a choice at fifth level though. They seem to really not want to give people choices though. To be fair, I can understand why they're hesitant against that because there very often seems to be the optimal choice. Yeah. Which means people only ever choose that one. And they also seem to be really looking at this from if somebody's brand new to the game, we don't want them to have to make a choice because it might create option paralysis. But at some point, I think people have to make choices. Yeah. Which, and it's also kind of funny when you look at like every every species they have made in one D&D that has a lineage, you're making a choice. Yeah. <laughs> which is a good transition because in a bit of a surprise move, Goliaths get floated as a potential player's handbook race. And in addition to the Goliaths we're used to seeing, which are now Stone Giant King Ken Goliaths, we have a bunch of different giant flavored ability making the current Goliath the Stone Giant, but now you have all the other types of giants as other lineages of Goliath. So how do we feel about these individual giant abilities as well as the new ability that lets the Goliath grow to large size for a limited amount of time? I was quite pleasantly surprised to see the Goliath included here. Um, I definitely wasn't expecting it, but it's fun to see. There are a lot of cool species available to players at this point in D&D. And while I don't necessarily want to see any of the old school core ones go away, it's nice to see some of the additional ones get some love in the early stages of an addition or whatever mm -hmm. this is. <laughs> I do think that having seen them in play, the Goliath's abilities are a bit more powerful than the other species 
that were at play in our in our playtest. The cloud giant's ability to teleport as a bonus action is huge, uh, and you know our hill giant Goliath made ample use of his ability to knock people prone. And that large form is quite unexpected. You know, thinking about it, I think the large form is in part to justify the fact that they wanted to give them some kind of bonus, you know, advantage on certain strength checks. Mm -hmm. And they wanted it to be about something that is physically true and not just saying that every Goliath is stronger than other people. Yeah. But at the same time, it also feels like everything that they design that is giant related gets this ability to grow to large size, but you don't get all the benefits of being large. You get this one specific thing. And I don't really think they need it. I like the other abilities. Some of them need to be toned down a little bit, but I like the other abilities being the defining factor. Like if they're going to be half giants or giant kin, I think it's okay for them just to be eight feet tall. I don't think they need that bonus of being able to grow to large size once in a while. Yeah, I think I think part of that is the they they really want to keep all of the player species in the smaller, the medium range. Mm-hmm. They don't want anyone to be tiny. They oh, don't yeah. want anyone to be large. And I'm fine with Goliath being medium sized and also eight feet tall because yeah. they're they're already kind of in that position now. So, <laughs> um, Con- considering Bruno was the second. Uh, second shortest person <laughs> yes. in that party at six foot eleven. We had the party of talls and then our wood elf. <laughs> I mean, I love giants, so I was never going to be not happy with having something that can fill that niche of being a half giant. And I've loved Goliaths ever since they showed up in third edition. I am not going to complain about them getting you know, this opportunity to be a little bit more of a core species. I will say it probably doesn't hurt that Critical Role's first campaign had yeah. a very prominent Goliath as a, one of the characters. I, I was thinking of him like, <laughs> yep, because you're going to get those, you're going to get those new people who like mm-hmm. come in off a of Critical Role and like, I want, I want to play somebody like Grog. Uh-huh, exactly. I think most of the abilities that they gave them are fine, except that, and I go through this in the article on my blog where I post this, where I look at the individual abilities, but if you start looking at all of the things that they've designed around giants, including the Unearthed Arcana that is coming up for the giant-themed book that's coming out next year, some of these do start to overlap or do more of the same thing that they're already doing. So if you have a Frost Giant Goliath who also takes the Frost Giant feats and also takes Rune Knight, you're going to be doing a lot of slowing people down by 10 feet every, you know, so you, you like to slow people down a lot. <laughs> I mean, I just think, I think they dip into some of the same design space a lot so that if you really hit that same thing with your Goliath to super specialize, you're going to be doing the exact same thing, but more a lot. (laughs) So it might not hurt to maybe make the abilities a little bit more distinct from what like the Ruin Knight or the Path of the Giant Barbarian or the Giant Feats give people. All right. The Rules Glossary. Thankfully has added a change log. <laughs> Holy crap, did it need a, a change log. So now we can actually see what they've changed this time around. First thing that we see added to the glossary is a change in the aid spell. Instead of adding temporary hit points and increasing your hit point maximum for three people, it gives temporary hit points to six people. What are your thoughts on this? Kind of one step forward, two steps back. It feels like a bit of a nerf because while being able to supply it to six characters instead of three is nice, not having the hit points be long-term additional hit points that can be healed seems to hobble what the spell could do. I loved the idea that you were boosting your hit point maximum for eight hours. And there are so many things that already give you temporary hit points. 
I don't know that just saying temporary hit points for six people is that exciting, but breaking your hit point maximum, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, our other thing that got a lot of changes is banishment. So now the spell allows you to save at the end of the affected creature's turn, and they're not permanently banished unless they fail their save for an entire minute at the end of the turn. So how do you think this is going to change banishment and how it gets used? <laughs> I mean, to be completely honest, I'm not sure. Banishment has been pretty powerful in some of the games I've played, oh, so yeah. I can see them attempting to nerf it slightly, but I'm not sure this is it, though. I suppose the chance of having the creature come back during the fight makes a little more sense, but it is a fourth level spell, so it should have some beef behind it. Trust me, I have seen banishment used in a game and been very frustrated, not so much that the thing is gone, but that it's gone for a minute, and then you have to figure out what the party's doing for a minute <laughs> while that thing's gone. Like, y'all got seven, eight more turns to figure out stuff that you're doing before it's back. <laughs> Go ahead, get ready. Oh, you want to hide? Go ahead, go hide. I don't even know that it was broken so much as it was just like one of those play experiences that is not fun, especially when you're fighting one thing and it gets banished. So I think something needs to be done with banishment. I don't know if this is it, because story-wise, you should have a spell that sends something from another plane back to its home plane. But the way banishment works is something gets sent away, and if it's not from another plane, you have a dead minute's worth of <laughs> planning that goes on. It's a pain in its current form. I'm not sure if this is it. Okay, so Guidance, once again, gets another minor change, but Resistance gets kind of the same change. And that is both spells are reactions. Both require you to be pretty close to a target now. So you got to be a lot closer, like within 10 feet or so. And But Guidance, they did pull back that you can only get benefits from Guidance once per day. So what do these changes do for the utility of the spells? Um, I'd actually miss that they limited the range on it. Is yeah. Keep it 30 feet. It should at least be 30 feet. Yeah, it's a, you got to be a lot closer now. I actually like um, that they dropped the guidance being limited to once per day per character. That seemed a tad limiting for a spell that only gives a D4 and was a cantrip. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a fan of these being changed to reaction spells. I know you have issues with the name of guidance and it being a reaction spell. Yes, and I've already did that, so I'm not going to go over it too much. <laughs> but I think it's it makes it more useful. And I love them making resistance a reaction because mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever got seen resistance actually used in a game. It's rare to see somebody plan that far ahead to give somebody resistance. We were talking about it in one of my campaigns. Should we get some resistance potions? Well, we don't know what we're going up against. So no, because that's a lot of money to spend on something. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll go up against something that does electricity. But having this be just a blanket, like, here's a little bonus to your your save, that's actually pretty useful. And you can yeah. see pretty quickly, like, oh, they rolled a one. I'm not giving you this. But, you know, somebody who, like, we know the DC is 14 and they rolled a 12 or they got a 12 on their roll. Yeah. Give, give them, you know, here, you do this. I was not against them limiting how many times somebody can receive something per day especially like i said these these are cantrips on the other hand though i thought the limit should have been once you successfully make the save or you successfully make the check then you can't get it again so that way if you keep blowing the roll even once you get the bonus you're not locked out of getting it again it's once that has actually made you successful that should lock you out but I don't know. We'll see how these shake out. Um, other than that, you already know my reaction thing. I'm not going to go into it. Just from a rule standpoint, I'm really not against it. It's more from a story standpoint. So get off my lawn, etc. 
<laughs> okay, so influence as an action is still there, and it got some rewrites. It's still in action, but the default DC is now 15 instead of it being either 10 or 20. And your whether someone is friendly, indifferent, or hostile determines whether you have advantage or disadvantage on the roll, which kind of is the same as lowering it or hiring it by five, depending on dice magic. Um, if the target has an intelligence higher than 15, that becomes the DC instead. It also emphasizes this check is only for one specific request from the target. How does this affect using this action in play? I still hate it. <laughs> okay, I suppose I need to elaborate. I guess this rewrite is a little better than what they had in the previous version, but I'm still not happy with it. I am still very concerned with a social interaction being called an action, which insinuates that it can be done in combat. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to see as a GM is the players being in the middle of a combat and somebody like, I'm going to use the influence action. Why? Your wizard yeah. just dropped a fireball. They're not going to talk to you now, but according to the rules, this is a legitimate thing that a player can attempt. And we've already established, like, you shouldn't, like, with the setting of DCs and roles and, you know, whether or not they can succeed or not, you shouldn't, as a GM, allow your players to attempt something that's impossible. Yeah. You know, it's like, don't, don't, no, you can't roll for that because that's impossible. But you can only ask one thing. So please, Mr. Necromancer, don't kill me. Okay, I'll kill your friends. Uh, well, okay, I guess. <laughs> you know, I hated the DCs listed in the previous version, but I also don't like the flat 15. Yeah. That seems to hobble the GM's ability to adjust a situation to whatever suits the game. I, I really don't like the influence action. The way they're trying to define influence is a very specific thing and it takes an action and it works this way. I'll put it this way. If you literally read this as a rule and this is what your social interaction is based on, I could not have done that trial scene. You're right. Because that trial scene would be, please do not convict us of this crime. I rolled above a 15. You are successful. There we go. I really think any kind of social interaction should stay in the Dungeon Master's Guide and give people options. It should be saying... If you want it to be a quick thing where you're fast talking a guard, it should be this action. If you want it to be a long drawn out negotiation, it should be handled like this. It shouldn't be one thing and it should not be player facing. It yeah. really should be up to the GM. I also don't like that intelligence is the thing that can actually make the, the thing higher. Like someone that is extremely wise is not going to catch on to you asking them for something that you shouldn't let them have. But if they're really intelligent, they will. Insight is the ability to let you know what somebody actually is yeah. intending and is that's based a, on wisdom yeah i mean it's just weird because it was like it was like let's throw out something that will let the dc be higher there's absolutely no social skills based on intelligence i just don't get why i don't get it <laughs> this this whole interaction is just just take it out of the player facing stuff and tell me what it looks like in the dmg it doesn't need to be here it just doesn't <sighs> okay <laughs> Back on track, Prayer of Healing has seen some changes. In, instead of affecting six creatures in range, it only affects one creature per point of your stat bonus. It also removes the restriction on healing undead and constructs and specifies that people have to remain in range for the entire 10-minute casting time. But it lets you take a short rest whenever someone casts this spell, but you can only benefit from it once per long rest. So what does all this do for the spell? <laughs> I mean, I, I actually like the short rest aspect of it, and I don't have a problem with that being a once per day mm -hmm. thing. I think that's a pretty solid thing, but I don't understand why they're fiddling with the uses or the targets. Yeah. Um, 
why why change prayer of healing from six the wisdom bonus this is frustrating um you know the original version of the spell could do good by a whole party mm -hmm. and yes i know they consider four to be a party but the most i've ever played in were were five or six yeah so why why, why limit then i i don't get it i don't get that change i don't know and honestly i i get them saying you have to stay in range for the entire cast to me yeah, that, that's fine to me that was a no-brainer because i don't see why somebody's over there chanting for 10 minutes and then you run over at the last second and get the healing that seems weird so that was just kind of me thinking that was always the case but fine if you want to spell that out cool awesome i think it's kind of cool to give somebody a spell that guarantees you will be able to get a short rest in 10 minutes instead of an hour mm -hmm. because that's useful that is useful in the middle of an adventure incredibly useful yes but not for just four characters. No, I think that's really weird to limit it by wisdom bonus. I think, I, I don't think you're breaking anything by saying, Hey, there's six of us. We all get to take a short rest and get a few extra hit points from the prayer of healing. Yeah. Cause I mean, sure. There's some, there's some characters who don't benefit from a short rest as much as others, mm. but if a group needs short rest for healing, everybody needs that hour. Why would you screw a six player party by changing this to now be only based on caster's wisdom bonus? Yeah, it seems really weird. And I don't know. I, I do think to some extent, Prayer of Healing probably needed some extra thing to make it a little bit more worthwhile because essentially it was just, I'm going to heal the whole party as long as we have 10 minutes. Yeah. And I think it's kind of cool to give somebody, hey, if you spend this resource, you get a short rest, even when you didn't have any chance to really take a short rest. That's cool. But the rest of it, I don't get it. Okay, so Spiritual Weapon gets a change in the form of now being a concentration spell. So no no more blessing your party while you also have a Spiritual Weapon up and running. Was this a good change for the game? No! <laughs> I don't know why they had to change this. The Cleric already has a ton of concentration spells. <laughs> and now you take the one nice little spell they have that didn't have concentration and add to it? Don't take my Cleric's hammer away from them. <laughs> Let their pet hammer go do its thing. I don't get why this one had to change. This is one of those, I have heard people that I consider very reasonable point out that, yeah, this probably should have been a concentration spell from the beginning. Having played a cleric, I have a hard time divesting myself of that feeling like I can still do something like bless and hit someone over the head with my magic weapon. I, I really liked being able to do that. I don't know if I'm going to be unbiased enough to give an opinion other than I, I, I still like my spiritual weapon. Please don't change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just feel like there's too many like there are too many other concentration spells for clerics for me to be happy with them changing it, even if it quote unquote should have been concentration from the beginning. I mean I kind of most of the things that got changed to concentration spells going into fifth edition were were um boosts that you would give people. So it was to keep you from not going into the fight like in third edition where you had your list of seven spells you wanted to cast on someone before you <laughs> opened the door and you can't do that anymore. And I get that, but this isn't really that. This is something you cast in the fight so that you can keep doing damage while you're also healing people or, you know, removing conditions from them yeah. or things like that. So I don't I like mean, it. I, to be fair, <laughs> It will mean spiritual weapon will not get used. Yeah. Because the, they're going to want to use ble uh, bless or spiritual guardians yeah. or other spells that are more useful as concentration spells. Because let's face it, bless is one of the greatest spells you can give somebody because sometimes you do miss something by one to four points mm -hmm. and that completely changes what is going on in the fight when you can let them roll that extra d4 if i gotta choose i'm gonna choose bless i just don't want to choose <laughs> okay so overall 
How are we feeling about the state of the playtest after this release? Um, I like that they showed that they are taking feedback into account with the revised version of the Ardling and the Dragonborn and some of the abilities in the glossary. I know there are quite a few naysayers out there who've been railing against one D&D as already being set in stone, and this is, pr- this is proof that they are actually listening and adjusting as they go, mm-hmm. even if the adjustments aren't exactly perfect. Please give the Ardling a little bit more oomph and a little <laughs> more narrative explanation. Mm-hmm. I'm still very concerned with the trend of tying things to proficiency bonus. I hate it. <laughs> But I don't have any real complaints about the cleric, and I'm happy with the smoothing out of the classes and subclass features. Um, I know that's not to everyone's taste, but it is to mine. Oh, and grapple is broken. Please fix it. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely got to see that. I have a lot more positive to say about this playtest than the last one. I think the last one, I don't even want to say the last one, oh, so terrible. I think it was just this massive system shock to see so many changes at one time in that last document. It was definitely more digestible to have a single class and a few other things. I know that that might not be the pace that they need to hit to get these documents out and reviewed in time to do what they want in 2024, but it was overwhelming to try and review the Bard, the Ranger, and the Rogue. It was, and it was a lot at one time. The feeling that I get with the Cleric is a lot more that this feels like the cleric with some tinkering as opposed to pretty much any of the other, you know, the expert classes. The rogue, actually the cleric feels a lot like the rogue did in mm-hmm. that there were some changes. It doesn't feel like it changes the, cla- the class overall for people that probably like that class, which was not what I felt with the ranger or the bard. And I'm not saying the ranger was bad, but it does feel a lot different than previous rangers. And the bard was just, oh boy. Oddly enough... <laughs> I think the biggest change to the rogue was not actually a change to the rogue. It was a change to the dual wielding rules. That's true. That is, that's true. Which is completely separate from the rogue and usable by any class. Mm-hmm. But it does majorly affect how a rogue functions. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I like the fact that they mentioned addressing the older subclasses because I think even though we haven't seen what that what that adaptation is going to be for the older subclasses. Mm -hmm. It's throwing that out there that no, we don't really want this to be a new rule set. And I appreciate that. Um, They Jeremy Crawford's videos this time around really emphasize that they want you to be able to still use something like if you really wanted to use something from the 2014 player's handbook, because you don't like what's going to be in the 2024, you could use that alongside something in the 2024 rules. And it's not meant to not work with each other. I'm kind of braced for the next one because I feel like the next one's going to be another big packet release after a little packet release because like you said there's no way they're going to get all of this done yeah, by 2024 they, if they don't do they a few can't more big release packets. every class by itself. Not to mention they are going to be fixing the bard. <laughs> there is no way the bard can stand as it is, which means they are going to have to release a revised version of the bard at some point in the future. The next thing that I'm kind of braced for is seeing warlocks and monks because warlocks and monks are very short rest heavy and mm-hmm. it doesn't look like they want to have some classes that are short rest heavy and other ones that are long rest heavy so i'm really interested to see what monks and warlocks end up looking like in this uh in this yeah. round but we'll see that when it when it shows up i also agree with you i think what they need to do if they want to stay with the per proficiency bonus model is they need to start saying you get Three uses of this plus your proficiency bonus. Yes. Instead of saying you get your proficiency bonus. I'm not saying three is the magic yeah, number across the board, but it's an example. Arbitrary number pulled yeah. out of the air. <laughs> yeah. 
like for the bard, maybe you'll say it's one proficient one plus your proficiency bonus. Whatever it is, I think they're gonna need to start saying X number plus your proficiency bonus to make it scale properly. Yes, yes. Um I will note they just released the survey for this document today as we are recording. They did that just for us because they knew that we like to fill out the document after the two of us get to talk about it. So I'm sure it's just about us. I sometimes I don't know what I think until like we like, oh yeah. Darren's got some good points there. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. So in every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, I've talked up Shard quite a bit, um, especially in our episode on VTTs, but I wanted to give them another one here because they just released a huge update with a whole bunch of features for character sheets. While Shard isn't the slickest VTT out there, I have been impressed with it since I started using it. And I love how it allows those that really want to dig into the features to figure out ways to model abilities for characters and monsters, or you can just play it as is without it being detrimental that you're not digging into the coding side of things. Unlike other VTTs out there, I'm looking <laughs> at you, Fantasy Grounds. I also need to give a shout out to their Discord community. Every time I've ever had a question, I've gone over there and been answered within a short amount of time. Um, they're very cool and patient, and I'm confident I can figure out anything I need to on that platform with their help. So link will be in the show notes to Shard. Yeah, I just I got that that email talking about the new features. And even though I don't use Shard, I really like it. Like everything that it was talking about, it already did a very good job of being a VTT that is tailored for fifth edition D&D. And mm -hmm. some of the things that I was reading in that update just sound really neat. The interesting thing is that in my last session, as I said, two of the characters got hit with the Traveler's Curse and a level of exhaustion. And we could apply a condition to them of exhaustion, but we couldn't make that apply a negative one to all of their roles. And so after the session, I went to the Discord and I'm like, hey, is there any way to actually model this in Shard? And they were like, it's in the beta. We're working on it. <laughs> so by the next time we play, we should be able to set up a condition that does something like apply a negative one to all roles. And there's other cool stuff in there as well that I'm sure my smarter, more technically minded players will be able to figure out before I do. <laughs> this time around, I'm going to talk about a book that I finished not too long ago. Erin M. Evans might be known to some of the people in this audience for her Forgotten Realms novels, but her latest book, Empire of Exiles, is based in her own setting. From the description, I knew it was going to deal with a fantasy setting where there is lots of court intrigues, but there is all so much more going on in this book, and I really enjoyed it. There are quirky archivists, there's a murder investigation, there's unique magic in the books that deal with having an affinity for a certain uh, type of material, like some people have an affinity for paper, some people have an affinity for brass, and how those people are affected by those affinities. The characters are really engaging. I really loved the protagonists in this, so I'm really looking forward to more books in the setting. If you're interested in that type of fantasy, I think you'll really enjoy this. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider our other show. The Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnomes Do get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and to avoid being part of the stew. We've used up all our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. And I hope that Chris doesn't kill us for going to <laughs> hours. Yes. 